Thank you. I like that unison hymn singing y'all did. It's pretty good. Well, the church uh, is itself a means of grace. Uh, during this series this year, we're studying the means of grace. And the, word, the phrase means of grace is a shorthand for all the ways God uses to extend His grace into our lives and conform us in the likeness of Christ. And this morning, we're looking at the ways that the church itself it is used by God as a means of grace. Uh, our text this morning uh, has several headings, which have been suggested by modern um, editors. The NIV calls this section, which was read, Living as Children of the Light. Uh, the ESV calls this section, The New Life. The RSV calls this section, The Old Life and the New. Uh, chapter 4 should uh, probably begin with verse 17, as, as it was started here, and go through at least 20 or 21, chapter 5, because this is really the section of Paul's uh, writing in a, to the Ephesians that really deals with this question of what they are experiencing as a church, because they are experiencing a massive influx of Gentiles into the church, praise the Lord. They are so excited that the gospel has burst the swaddling clothes of Judaism, and they're experiencing a remarkable transformational work. But the Jew, the, the Gentiles who are pouring into the church have no background in the holiness codes of the Jewish ways of life. And so it's present a very big challenge for, for the church. And Paul wants the uh, new Christians that are coming in to be living a transformative life. And the church is expected to be a transformative ecosystem which vibrantly extends the sanctifying grace of God. So in this section, Paul begins in verse 17 with this very bold word, Mataromai, this I solemnly testify. And Paul is testifying or bearing witness to what he calls a remarkable radical transformation that happens when someone comes in into the life of Christ. This is actually a radical identity, a new identity which supersedes without supplanting our previous identities that the Gentiles and all of us bring into the church. Now, in our culture, uh, as with any culture, actually, uh, there are a number of leading, defining marks of identity. And you know these. There are ethnicity, gender, language, social status, and cultural experience. And we are taught from very early to understand how these five very powerful, very formative forces shape who we are and how we relate to the world, how others relate to us based on our ethnicity, gender, language, social status, or our cultural experience like being a, an immigrant or whatever. Now these are five leading forces and the gospel does not obliterate these. The gospel does require everything to go to the altar. It is uh, passes through the fire, as it were, but it's given back to us in a sanctified state. And so John, even in the eschaton, which was actually quite remarkable, John sees men and women in their cultural particularity, every tribe, tongue, and language, even in the eschaton. So on the one hand, the gospel celebrates, rightfully so, our particularities, which we understand and embrace, but also he's saying there's something powerful about our identity in Christ which supersedes, without supplanting, all of these new identities, all these this identity. 
So when we belong to Christ and we are members of the baptized community of those who follow Christ, we are now in this remarkable new identity where we're now in Christ. And this, is, this itself is a priceless insight from this text in a culture where we are so identified by our various particularities. So Paul says in Colossians 3.11, for example, in Christ... There is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. But wait a minute, everybody, they were all those things. They were either slave or free. They were barbarians or Scythians. They were Jew or Gentile. They were circumcised or uncircumcised. None of those things were denied, actually. He's just saying, in Christ, those things are as of nothing, because this new identity is now the controlling identity of which those other things are brought into greater harmony. So Paul's testimony is setting forth here a stunning alternative to how we are to walk. We're no longer to walk in step with the Gentile world and all the ways they drew their identity. We once were really captivated by what was going on with Taylor Swift or Beyonce or Kevin Hart once you really cared about the latest Instagram shots or YouTube videos that had gone viral or the outcome of some fantasy football game or the latest clothing styles. But all those things fade as we draw our identity in Jesus Christ. And Paul notes uh, two trajectories, actually, and here it's important. He, notice, he notes a trajectory that is being transformed from both the mind and the heart. This is important because we talk a lot here about transformation and formation about the mind and the heart. So in verse 17, he says, We're not going to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So there is a, a, a mental, we have to think differently as we come to Christ. And in verse 19, they have given themselves over to sensuality, indulge in every kind of impurity. In other words, when we come into the church, both our minds and our hearts, our lives, have been corrupted by poor thinking and poor living. Now, it is true that not all Gentiles are marked by all of these things he lists in this passage, but what he's trying to communicate to us is that these are the kinds of things that get replicated in the lives of unbelievers that are disconnected from Christ. And he's pointing us to what happens when someone comes into the church. Now, this is where the church comes in. The church is a means of grace through which God extends his transforming work into our lives. Now, there are two ways, and I want you to really hear me, two ways which the church expresses itself as a means of grace. And both of these are important and, in fact, very related. The first we call the radical call. The other is the radical transformation. That's the title of this sermon. This is basically my thesis point, that God actually used the church to both extend the radical call, the universal, radical, embracing, inclusive love of God to all people right where they are, yet also the equal grace of God to invite us into a powerful life of transformation. The church is both of these. Let's first begin with the radical, open call of the church to the world. Now, we've all seen signs in front of the church, and for a long while, this was a kind of American thing, a U.S. thing, but now I've seen it now all over the world. Churches now put signs out front that say things like, some version of, you're welcome, we love you, 
I mean, some, put, some churches put all kinds of weird things out there, right? Okay, some strange things. It's baseball Sunday and all that, okay? But the point is, a lot of churches have some version of, you're welcome, we would love to have you here. It's the radical call. But no church quite captured this like the Avondale UMC in Florida. And I want to show you on this overhead what they put on their sign. I have it here to read to you. You can't see it. This is what they say in Avondale. Now, this is the radical inclusive call. We extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, gay, or just not sure. Filthy rich, dirt poor, no habla inglés, and a special welcome to those who are crying newborns, skinny as a rail, or could afford to lose a few pounds. We don't care if you're more churchy than the Pope or haven't been in the church since little Joey's baptism. We welcome you if you're over 60 but not grown up yet or a teenager who's growing up too fast. We welcome soccer moms, NASCAR dads. There you go, Alan, NASCAR dads. Uh, Starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. We welcome those who in recovery or still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems or you're down in the dumps or if you don't like organized religion. We've been there too. If you blew all your offering money at the dog track, this is Florida, okay? You're welcome here. We offer special welcome to those who think the earth is flat. <laughs> when you love and part of the committee of the church that actually came up with this sign, um, work too hard, don't work, can't spell, or because grandma's in town and wanted to go to church. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, or both. We welcome those who could use a prayer right now, had religion shoved down your throat as a kid, or got lost in traffic and just wound up being here by mistake. We welcome tourists, seekers, doubting, doubters, bleeding hearts, and you. We welcome you. They really got it. All right? In that sense, I believe this sign that's there, and actually this is, if you want to execute the sign a little bit, uh, we'll execute the sign today. This is a sign, uh, it's a sign of an expression of the provenient grace of God. It is an expression of the whosoever of John 3.16. They kind of pretty much covered the gamut. It's an expression of that powerful text, Isaiah 55.1. Come all who are thirsty, come to the water you have no money, come by and eat. It's this text which Jesus draws upon John 7.37. Let anyone who is thirsty come and drink. This is the universal call. This is, there's no exceptions. This is, this is profoundly universal. This is part of the Wesleyan sense of the inclusive love of God through provenient grace. This is Paul, actually. His theology in 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have to change everything to for Christ. Okay, I'll now die for you. That's not how it works. So if you actually look at Paul's text in Ephesians, he kind of has his own list about the old self with the dirty clothes on. He says those they're welcoming from the Gentile world were deceivers, verse 23, liars, verse 25. They don't include that on there. We welcome liars. People with anger issues. They could have put that one up there. Thieves, people who are bitter, sexually immoral, Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 3. It sounds like a sign like we have in Avondale. We do come just as we are. That is part of the gospel message. But Christ transforms us. Thanks be to God. You can take away the sign for now. 
Paul's point is this kind of life that we are brought into, we put off and we put on. The kind of theme in this, I, I love the, the theme that kind of summarizes the whole section. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's this kind of transaction happening between putting off and putting on. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This is the way it works in the New Testament. If we allow the radical, unconditional, inclusive call, which is wonderful, by the way, to be separated from the radical transformation of new life in Christ, then we have actually engaged in what is known as cheap grace. It's cheap grace to offer a gospel which does not call for transformation because transformation is part of God's grace in our lives, right? It is cheap grace which pretends the first half of the gospel can be separated from the second half of the gospel. It's chief grace which puts a wedge between justification and sanctification. It's chief grace which presumes upon the grace of God while we continue to live in sin. It's chief grace to separate the radical call from the radical transformation. Now, I'm going to say something about my life growing up. Uh, this may disappoint you, but you know how in high school you all have, you know, you're all in, you're in clubs and teams and all that. You know what team I was on? I hate to even admit it. I like to say the football team. No. I was on the typing team. <laughs> I know. I know. It's one of those moments of just kind of like putting it out there. I, my dad had taught me to type very early on, and so I'd kind of grown to the typist. I got to high school. I just blew away all the records. Next time I was traveling around the state leading the typing team. It is a gift I have. I don't know if I should be proud of it. I, I, I don't have any football stories, but I have typing stories. <laughs> so um, these fingers are well-coordinated, okay? I still hold some records at Brockup High School. Uh, but the whole point of proper typing is a, is a coordination of your left hand and your right hand, right, in a seamless, seamless way. And so you, the typewriter is actually in your fingers, and you have, you know, uh, Q-W-R-T-Y-U-I-O-P, A-S-D-F, J-J-K-L, semicolon, et cetera. The whole thing is in your fingers. Now, if you learn to type properly, and you, there's certain keys which are designated left hand, certain keys designated right hand. So I, this week, a few days ago, I sat down at the typewriter, and I typed a very familiar verse of the Bible, but I only used my left hand. Any... any uh, word, letter that was left off the right hand was not there, and so it looks like this. That is a verse all of you know. Anyone know what verse it is? You may wonder where I'm going with this sermon. <laughs> okay, that is that verse with only the left hand operating. When I retype the verse with the right hand, it looks like this. Next slide. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels... We don't have love, I'm an always sounding gong or a clanging cymbal, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Now, if we only extend the radical, inclusive call of God, we actually speak in gibberish because we're only leading with one hand, right? And ironically, if you go back and look at that, you can check, I didn't make any mistakes. I mean... It, it, everything on the first slide was accurate and true. The sign that Evandale had is exactly accurate. There's nothing wrong with the sign. It's accurate. It's true. 
But the point is, it still speaks with lack of clarity if we don't actually also say that God's also transformed and brings in the right hand, like a two wings of a bird is flying. It takes both to be a coherent. Let's move to the second theme, which is the church as the arena for radical transformation. So we arrive at the church, and we have this remarkable dynamic that happens, particularly in Paul's ethics, where you have this indicative imperative, where on the one hand, uh, you're declared to be holy. You are holy. Now go be holy, right? So there's this transformation. On the one hand, we are in Christ, so we fully are receiving through grace this new identity in Christ. We are in Christ with all of his righteousness, but he's determined to transform us and to make us into his likeness. So you have uh, in Isaiah 61.10, I think the background for this whole theme, he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in robes of righteousness. That gets brought over to the New Testament. It becomes a very dominant theme in Paul's writings. So Colossians 3.9, do not lie to each other since we have taken off your old self with pride and put on the new self which has been renewed in knowledge and in its creator. So we come in, we joyfully received, but then we have a clothing exchange. Romans 13.14, put aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't even think about gratifying the desires of the sinful nature. This is an exchange. Galatians 3.27, through faith in Jesus Christ, you are children of God and clothe yourselves with Christ. Hebrews 12 has the same theme. This is not Paul, but you know, throw off everything that encumbers you. And then our text here in Ephesians 4, 22-23, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in your spirit and your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and in true righteousness and holiness. Now, when I wasn't typing in high school, I was spelunking. You know what spelunking is? Yeah. If you're in from Kentucky, you know, this is, the, this is the, my first trip to Kentucky was to spelunk. Is that the right word, spelunk? Anyway, I was cave exploring. I love cave exploring. I would spend entire weekends in caves. I had caves I went through that were so, the path was so narrow, you had to kind of worm your way through these passages. I used to have a collection of belt loops I collected through these passages because they were so narrow, people would tear their belt loops off of their pants. That is a true spelunker. I loved it. I enjoyed it. And I remember one time I came home uh, from a weekend of, of cave exploring, and I got to my house, and, and my mother opened the door, and there I was. I was apparently just filthy, dirty from top to bottom. My mother gave me a twofold response. And it was, you know, kind of a gospel moment for me. On the one hand, she said, Tim, it's so good to see you. I got the radical, inclusive love of my mother, which I still get. She's 91 years old. She's generally still happy to see me. No, she's always happy to see me. But she also said, but don't set foot in this house till you strip down. I literally walked into my house that day in my underwear. I'm thankful at least I had that on. It was clean. My point being that there was a a radical transformation. I had to put off the old clothes to go in and put on the new clothes. It's part of the way it works with the gospel. This is the prodigal son. You know, you put the best robe on him. This is how it happens. 
So uh, the next slide, if you, if you have the sign, I often wondered what should we put at the bottom of that sign in Avondale. Maybe they could have put this at the bottom. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Now that actually helps the sign communicate the reality of what is actually happening to the grace of God in the life of the church. My point being this, the radical call of the gospel should never be leveraged against the holiness which characterized the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's a false narrative that is very popular today that if we speak of holiness, we are somehow denying the radical inclusive embrace. But actually, the gospel always brings these together. Paul makes it clear those who live in darkness will not inherit the kingdom of God. We are a transformed community. We come in and we are part of the transformed community of Christ. I also love the fact if they, I don't know, I haven't been to this church to see what's on the back of the sign, but you know, it would be great if they had that sign like it is. I mean, I, I like it full-throated. There it is, universal call. But what if they had on the back of the sign as you leave the church, you saw the back of the sign, and it said this on the back. Look at the next slide. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Wouldn't it be great on the back of the sign? I was down in another church in Florida. By the way, I love Florida. Just, these are just Florida illustrations today. Steve Gober's here with us. So this is a Florida day in Estes Chapel. But I was in another church in Florida, and they were passing out these shirts uh, the day I was there. I got one. I love the church shirt. I love it, okay? Don't get me wrong. This is what the church sister says. Bold letters, come as you are. All right, that's the t-shirt. I love it. It's radical, radical call. It's embrace. We all get it. And churches today often have shirts like this. What bothered me about the shirt, and I told the pastor this, is that the back of it was blank. For the same money, they could have had both sides you know, done. It's okay. This was a big church. They could have afforded it. Why was the back left blank? Why wasn't the back of the church leave transformed? Right? I think what's happened, I wondered about this a lot. Why is it? Now, you go back to the holiness movement, our own history. You know, the pendulum had swung the other direction, right? So we were an isolated community. We were, you know, very protective of our holiness. We didn't want anybody to come in and mess it up. These Gentiles will be too disruptive to our meetings. Let's don't have them come in. And so we were like, wait a minute, where's the radical call? Right? So the church has, this panel has gone both directions. I, I get that. So we in many ways are coming out of a tradition which was so focused on holiness that we weren't ready to really embrace the world in its worldliness and say God loves you right where you are. No full, no comma, no commentary, just full stop. But then as we come into Christ's love, he transforms us. Now, so I think the pendulum has swung back, and we seem to have, we were so strong on the radical call, which is to be uh, applauded. But we should also recognize that the church is a place of transformation, and we should never forget that. Now, this is where I think Paul finally brings all this together, because the church, what will keep the church from endlessly vacillating between these two things, which essentially are between the, the pole of legalism, when you spend because that side also begins to create humanly attainable righteousness ideas, 
We don't go to movies and all those things. We can do all that kind of stuff. So we create an endless list because they're humanly attainable. And then we're proud of it. Okay, that whole legalistic side. And then swing over, woo, to the antinomian side, which is largely the state of the current contemporary church. Where you're antinomian and there's no sense of holiness. So what is it that keeps that ha- from happening over and over again in the church is Paul's third section, which is the church is sealed in the means of grace by the Spirit of God. In other words, it is the Spirit of God which allows this to be held together. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, this is verse 30, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So it's a way of saying to the Gentiles, you can't do it. We can't, this is not a performance to please God. We can't do it. We come in in humility and the Holy Spirit works in our lives and transforms us, right? So that's why the, the phrase, the means of grace, the operative word is the word grace. This is God's grace in our lives. Now, is that piano, that's closed, isn't it? Is it open? It's locked. Okay. Well, don't worry. But if I were to go down to the piano and be told to play a piece of like Bach or Beethoven or whatever, or Brahms, you'd be very disappointed. <laughs> very disappointed. It's not going to happen. But... What's so amazing is the call to holiness is like that. If you're not a piano player, the call to holiness is God saying to you, play a Bach invention and play it perfectly. You're like, whoa. All right, this is the beauty of it, though, is that the Holy Spirit plays through us, right? The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and through the power of the church and the work of the church as a means of grace enables us through the power of God and the company of the believers to walk in holiness and righteousness. And this uh, next slide, this sums it up. This is from John Bunyan. To work and to run the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Amen? We cannot simply view this as a new law. This is a new enablement which happens through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is even deeper than the law could have imagined. That's what the gospel does for us. Now, if you go through this text carefully, uh, at least my read through this text, I've counted, if you don't, if you take away duplicates, there are 14 things that Paul tells us to put off, and there's eight things he calls us to put on. We will not go through all 14. But I do want to mention three of them in conclusion. But I think these three, if we as a community were to say as a community corporately and on our hearts, we are going to listen deeply to those three things that Paul admonishes us. It would be transformative for us. The first is unwholesome speech. Now think about, we live in a world and a culture, to, and especially the last few years, of tremendous overwhelming uh, lack of civility in speech. It's in the political discourse, on the national level, in some ways it gives permission for the whole culture to be into coarseness and vulgarity and name-calling, all of this. So if the church 
were to rise up and say, no unwholesome word shall come out of my mouth. That alone would make us a bright, shining light, right? So here's a great opportunity for us to take an obvious example, which is all over our culture, tremendous vulgarity, and say, we are not going to do that way. Paul says, this one once he repeats over and over again, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouths, only for what builds others up. Think about that for our community. In 4.30, no slander. 5.4, nor should be any obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. All that he says is out of place, only thanksgiving. Think about what would happen if we as a community were to put our tongues on the altar and say, Lord, help us, deliver us from unwholesome speech. Secondly is sexual immorality. He says in 5 verse 3, There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality among the people of God. Now now that you have clothed yourself with Christ, he is saying to us, we must uh, have a completely different standard of sexual morality in our midst. If you are um, in a Christian marriage, a man and a woman are in marriage, there is to be no sexual activity outside of marriage. It's wrong. It's evil. If you're dating someone, You should covenant from the very beginning that we will not engage in sexual intercourse outside of marriage because it's wrong, it's destructive. These are big commitments that each of you can make. Or if you're married or single, that you will not engage in pornography or allowing lust to take root in your your heart and your mind. These are really important things that Paul just tells us, don't do it. Live in, in morality. Now, if you can look back on your life and you see a lot of brokenness in this area, this is the great thing, what God would say to you today. You have the radical, inclusive call of God. He's saying to you, I, I, we receive you with all of your past baggage. But now that you're in Christ, let's clothe ourselves differently. Thirdly is in 432, the unforgiveness. He says, forgive each other just as Christ forgave you. Uh, Some of you have spiritual, even physical ailments in your life because you have not forgiven someone who has hurt you. Or you need to go and and ask for forgiveness, something you've done. Forgiveness is a huge, huge impediment to our our lives, unforgiveness to our lives. So Paul is saying, okay, just in these three things, wholesome speech, complete integrity in our sexual lives and that we would live and walk in forgiveness. Let's just put those three things on the altar today. And Lord, may that be true. And let me just say in closing that those three things are only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we could actually be on our way to embodying a truly, a true community of holiness we would embody the radical call and the radical transformation, the two wings of the bird, both made possible as we joyfully embody this work through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this call to, for some of us to open ourselves up, to embrace a world that we have maybe shot away from, have been 
just want to hang around people that are already like us and speak like us and believe like us. And we need to be jolted out of that and to understand that there's a world out there that desperately needs to know that Jesus loves them right where they are. And also, Lord, we also need to really, once again, be reminded of the radical transformation. In community, we're going to open this altar and this closing hymn as we sing the church is one foundation. And I just want the altar be open. You may need to come down to the altar and do business with God. Place something there. It might be your own tongue. Your Lord, I want to really be a person of wholesome speech. It may be challenges in your sexual life. Lord, we want to put those on the altar today. Or maybe an issue of forgiveness in your life where you've been hurt or you've hurt someone else. Lord, we pray that be on the altar this day. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.